Turning your Bibles to the book of Matthew, chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. We took a little break from this last week as Jayla was being baptized, which I think was appropriate. Um, don't you? <laughs> we praise the Lord for that. Matthew chapter 6. We're going to be starting here in verse 25. And I was out a couple days ago um, getting home. Well, it was yesterday, I guess. Yesterday, Jayla had a volleyball game. Uh, and when we came home from the volleyball game, I was just struck suddenly by, as I'm getting out of the car, by the, the tree in our front yard. And those of, those of you who have been to our house, you know we have this huge, I think it's a maple tree, in our front yard. It's just massive, a massive amount of foliage, I guess, on that, on that tree. And as most of us are aware, it's fall. <laughs> if you haven't been made aware of that, let me make you aware of that. <laughs> um, and in the fall, what happens to the leaves on trees? The, chain, the color changes, and they fall, right? We've already had an entire yard filled with leaves that we've had to rake, and our tree hasn't even fallen yet. <laughs> Thank you, neighbors. Um, but I was, just, I was struck as I was in my front yard. I saw the tree, and it was just beautiful. Right now, it's just like this, this deep and profound orange color, and it's absolutely gorgeous. And I just had to stand and look at it. And what struck me is that, you know what, I have to look at this right now because in two days, all these leaves are probably going to be on the ground. So I have to enjoy this while it's there. If I don't enjoy it now, I'm going to have to wait another year to enjoy it. <laughs> so, and then I, after I was thinking about that, after I was enjoying the tree, just looking at it, just enjoying the beauty of its colors... It occurred to me that this is kind of exactly what we've been talking about in this passage um, in Matthew chapter 6 for a few weeks now. Uh, that one day, you know, is our life supposed to last forever? No, it's not. It's not meant to last forever. One day, for some of us, it may be abruptly. One day, life's going to be over. It's going to be done. There's going to be no more life for us to live. Like the, like the leaves on, a, on an autumn tree, you know that in a short time, those leaves are going to fall. And that tree will be left bare. There will be nothing left on that tree, except the bark, but that's besides the point. In our life, we must see the wisdom of the, of the autumn tree. That one day, in just a short time, it doesn't feel short when we're living life all the time, Sometimes it does, but in just a short time, our leaves are going to fall and our life is going to be over. The opportunity to follow God, to seek God in this life is very brief. It's short. He doesn't give us centuries to seek him, to find him. We have just a few years and then eternity Really, our years are part of God's eternal existence, but that's a conversation for another day. And to our regret, we do often spend this brief spell of our life obsessing over things that have little to no ties to God's kingdom. Some of these things are not even bad things. Today, we're going to look about how Jesus is talking about food, drink, and clothing. None of those things are bad things. Like anything, they can be obsessed over in excess. But Jesus isn't even really talking about excess in this passage that we're going to be looking at today. He's just talking about the, the raw actions of eating, drinking, clothing, the simple needs that we do have. And these are good and necessary things. And often, if we're, if we're honest with each other, Many of our life's pursuits are perhaps even more vain than these. Some of our life's pursuits are sinful. 
And today I'd like to encourage each one of us, myself included, because I need to constantly be reminded of these things every day, to refocus our passions so that we might, with singularity of will, seek only the kingdom of God with this short time that we have left. Now let's read this passage here in Matthew chapter 6. Starting in verse 25, he says, Therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food in the body, more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor do they reap nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more value than, of more value than they? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after these things the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all of these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. I mean, just reading through that, Jesus is, is the master at giving a rebuke and making it sound beautiful, <laughs> making it sound peaceful, humble, tranquil, even though he's rebuking us. Jesus is great at that. And that's one thing I just admire about how God teaches us. How he is harsh but gentle at the, in the exact same moment. And I want to start here, if we'll back up to verse 25. And you've heard it before. This passage starts out with a very important word. Therefore. Now therefore, you have to see what it's there for. You've heard that before, I'm sure. <laughs> I don't think I've said it, but it's, it's pretty common. And we ha whenever we see a therefore, we need to always see what was just stated. Because when, it, when there's a therefore, the train of thought that's following is tied precisely to what is said before it. And what does verse 24 say? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. And now this passage that we just read is expanding this one little verse. You cannot serve God and mammon. So he is helping us discern how each one of us can get trapped in mammon Mammon, we discussed a couple weeks ago, being not just money, but just earthly material gain and satisfaction. Earthiness. You cannot serve God and earthiness. You cannot do it. And Jesus is teaching a short little sermon within a sermon here about how we can know whether we're serving mammon or if we're serving God. And he instructs us to seek God, his kingdom, his things. So back here to verse 25, he says, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life. Let's stop there. Some of your translations might say, do not be anxious. Be anxious for nothing. And really the word anxious, the word worry, they're similar. And we understand. I'm not going to sit here and talk forever about what anxiety and worry are. Because you and I are pretty familiar with those concepts. Because we struggle with them, we deal with them on our own. And he's saying, do not be anxious. Do not worry about your life. 
Now, it does not matter if you're rich or poor, of high status or low status, sick, healthy, attractive, or otherwise. Everyone in every position in life has a widespread of facets that we could worry about. The poor has this, this circle of things that they could worry about. The rich have this circle of things that they could worry about. The healthy worries about this. The sick worries about that. And there's, it doesn't matter who you are on this planet. Nobody is without opportunity to worry. In fact, statistics show that the rich in our nation are the most anxious people in our nation. And it's the, the concept in our head is, if I have more money, then I will not have to worry about so much. But statistics show that that's not true. The rich are the most depressed in our nation. If we think about the slums of the city being where all the drugs are, when really the, the highest rate of drug use is among the wealthy. Because they're worrying. Because they're unsatisfied. They've gotten to where they've gotten through much sacrifice, but yet they still have not found peace. Jesus is saying, do not worry. But yet, we think, okay, Jesus, how? Have you seen my life? Have you seen everything that I struggle with. Jesus, you've clearly fallen off your rocker. You're the 30-year-old who hasn't really lived. You haven't lost your house. You haven't been divorced. You haven't lost a child, gone bankrupt, been sick unto death, been fired and couldn't find a job for months. If you really knew what people went through, Jesus, you wouldn't be speaking like a madman. Worry is just a part of life. But Jesus, don't forget who he is. He's God. He's deity. The one who created us. The one who set our life in motion and planned it out. And we must see that if Jesus is saying, don't worry, don't be anxious, then there must be something to that. There must be a way. Even though you and I may have been searching for that way for years, perhaps decades, and yet have not found it. Because really when it comes down to it, worry and anxiety are just seeing life as it is. It's just looking and being obsessed over what's in front of us in our life and what's to come. We're worried about, oh, the impending doom, if such and such doesn't happen. If I don't do this, if this doesn't happen, then my future is going to fall apart. So we get anxious. I want you to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Second Corinthians chapter 1. In this passage, we're going to see something here. And I want to, I want to before I start reading this passage, you've heard that it was said, um, God will not give you more than you can handle. Is that really true? Is it true that God will never give you more than you can handle? And I can understand the sympathetic nature of the comment. And I can see that there are some scriptures that might cause you to, to think such a thing. You know, you want to be able, you want, sometimes we just want to hear, you can do it, don't give up. If you don't give up, you'll make it through. God will never give you more than you can handle. But think about that statement for just a second. God will not give you more than you can handle. Where does that place all the strength in life? In you. When you say God will not give you more than you can handle, it's saying that you're the strong one. It's saying that you're the one who's capable of making it through anything. It's therapeutic. It sounds nice. But it brings the glory down. And as a church body, we need to leave the glory where it belongs. 
And this is exactly where anxiety comes from, such thought process like this. I know God won't give me more than I can handle, so I'm going to try to handle it all. And that's where the anxiety comes from, because we think that we're the one responsible for handling it all, because God will not give me more than I can handle. So that very statement could be the core of why we're anxious and we worry, because we feel like it's up to us. But look at this passage here, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Starting in verse 3, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. We're not going to go through this piecemeal because there's a point here that he's leading up to, but you see here that God is the one who comforts us. How do you like to comfort you? With certain foods, activities, the TV. I'm feeling stressed, so I'm going to go to X. I'm going to go do this. Go do that. Because I'm stressed, I need to relieve some of this stress. But here it says, God is the one who comforts us in all of our tribulation. Verse 5, For as the suffering of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through ice cream, (laughs) YouTube, Christ! Christ! Now if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer. For if we are comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. So what he's talking about here is, and as we'll see more of this coming down the line, Paul knows that what, he, what his life is meant for. His life is meant for revealing the mysteries of the mercies of God through the salvation of Jesus Christ to Jews and Gentiles, to showing them the way, the truth, and the life. He knows that that's what his life is all about. So when God comforts Paul, he knows that he's receiving this so that he might have strength to keep doing what God has called him to do and building up the church. And how many times, if you've read through Paul's letters, does he use his suffering to teach the gospel? All the time. His testimony of both salvation and suffering, he is constantly bringing up to help the people see the glory of the gospel and the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. In verse 7, he says, And our hope for you is steadfast, because we know that as you are partakers of the sufferings, so also you will partake of the consolation. God is always there. The same way he is with Paul, he is with us. But let's keep reading. For, in verse 8, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren. I'm going to tell you a story, he's saying. I'm going to tell you that I'm not going to... I'm not, if you ask me, how are you? I'm not going to say, dandy. <laughs> no, I'm going to tell you how it is. I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which, is, which came to us in Asia. That we were burdened beyond measure above strength, so that we despaired even of life. You hear that? God gave them more than they could handle. They could not take care of themselves. They could not handle it. Because God made them strong enough to handle it. They despaired even of their own life. Yes, we even had the sentence of death in ourselves. Why? He's telling us why all this was happening. So that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Now, 2 Corinthians was written right before Romans was was written. Paul knew that God wanted him to go to Rome. He knew that God was not going to let him die before getting to Rome, because he knew that God had a mission for him in Rome. He believed it. He believed as much anyway. And he knew that, just like Abraham knew, the faith of Abraham, remember, that even if he offered Isaac on that altar by the command of God, he, knew, he had faith that, you know what, God's going to keep his promise, even, it meant, even if it means raising Isaac back up from the dead. Paul is saying the same thing here. I know that God has a purpose for me that is unfulfilled yet. I have not, I'm not finished. If these people kill me, God's just going to raise me back from the dead. He had faith in God. 
He did not have faith in his ability to finagle himself out of this tough situation. Even to the point of death. So he was burdened beyond measure. He could not handle the situation. But what was going on in this? He was serving the Lord, seeking the kingdom first. So we're going to be talking about anxiety. And there are a couple different types of anxiety that we can have in life. One, the anxiety over earthly things. Food, drink, clothing. And here, Paul shows us another type of anxiety that is actually a reasonable anxiety. The kingdom of God. Seeing the kingdom spread. Rather than seeing your own kingdom sustained. So what makes anxiety good versus evil? Anxiety that is evil and carnal is an anxiety that is focused only on what's going on in your life. Your comforts, your satisfactions, your success. This is a carnal anxiety. And this is what Jesus is trying to purify in his church. But Paul here, he is showing us a worry, a despair that revolved around the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. Not the kingdom of Paul. He wanted to see people coming to Jesus Christ. He wanted to see his people firmly established in the faith. He wanted to see the people of God endure in the same way that Paul was enduring. By the power of God. He wanted the glory of God to be revealed to mankind. That's why he was on edge. Because he knew it needed to happen. He was passionate about God's glory being seen. The mercy of Jesus Christ to be known and accepted. And he was not okay to see somebody not accept it. So for these things, for the sake of his life, he despaired, but not because he cared about his life. No, but rather because he cared about the kingdom of God. And his righteousness. And why did God bring all of this? So that we would not trust in ourselves. But in God who raises the dead. You are not meant to handle all of your problems. Sometimes God brings you a defeating problem. Because he wants you to just come to him. He's not trying to make you miserable. He's trying to show you that he is the God of all comfort. That he is the one who brings you through the valley of the shadow of death. And gives you, up, gives you reason to not fear that valley because thou art with me. Not because I have all of these petty things coming alongside of me that can relieve the stress. Not because I have all these fallback options. We all want to fall back, right? Something that we can trust in. In case things go bad. Jesus is telling us, Paul is telling us through his testimony. No, God is your only consolation. You don't need fallbacks. God is your fallback. God is your life. He's not a fallback. He's your life. He is the first one that you go to in these situations. And I want to go back to, to Matthew chapter 6. And we need to keep reading here. Do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food in the body? More than clothing or raiment? The resounding cry of the age in which we live is no. Life is only worth living when you're living to fulfill your appetites. Right? I mean, you just look around you. You go to the city and you look around you. Everything there is for the sake of appetite fulfillment. 
You look at, you watch TV. Everything's about appetite fulfillment. You watch the commercials. Every everything's about the fulfillment of some sort of appetite. This is life. The fulfillment of your desires. That's how the world lives. What else do they have? It's understandable, is it not? What else does the world have? They have no consolation in God. They don't have God. What else do they have? Their bodies. The bodies of their family. And all, whether it's your body or somebody else's body, it's all about the fulfillment of something in these bodies. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 17-21 through 21, say, Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk, as you have us for a pattern. Okay, so he's telling, he's telling us here in this verse, we walk a certain way, and then there are other people who walk a certain way. And I want you to make note of these people, because it's important for you to follow these types of people. And in verse 18, he says, For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. And what, define, what determines that these people are the enemies of the cross of Christ? Verse 19, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. He's not specifically pointing out because they're, coming, they're killing Christians, they're coming against us, they're persecuting the church. No, he's saying these enemies of the cross of, the Christ, of the cross of Christ are enemies and it's proven by the fact that all they ever think about is earthly things. All they concern their life with is earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we so eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. If you want to think about your body and what your body needs, think about this. Our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who's going to transform this lowly body. If you want to think about what's going to happen to your body, just glory in the future when God is going to transform it. Glorify it. Make it immortal. That's how we should be thinking about our bodies. About when we get to die and go be with Jesus and be transformed. That's the only consideration we ought to have for our bodies. And those are the types of people, people with that kind of an outlook, those are the types of people we should be following. The people that we should not be following, the people that we should be marking out as people who need Jesus, we all need Jesus, who need to be saved. Is that what Paul said? Save yourselves. From the perversity of this generation? Where does that come from? Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame. They set their mind on earthly things. Earthly things. That's not the friend of Christ. Thomas Akempis wrote several hundred years ago, there are many who will come to Christ, come along Christ at his banquet in his glory but there are few who will come alongside Christ in his suffering in his abstinence and in his fasting why because that part of Christ doesn't appeal to the body doesn't appeal to my comforts and my peace I don't want to come to Christ in his suffering, in his abstinence, and in his fasting, in his fasting. I want to come to Christ at his banquet table. I want to come to Christ at his victory over my life's problems. That is not a friend of Christ. That is the friend of the world who uses Christ to fix their problems. And Jesus, just before preaching about this, gave a semi-cryptic statement about our eye being the lamp of our body. 
And if our eye is bad, our whole body will be filled with darkness. And how great is that darkness, he said. Is this not anxiety? If anybody who's struggled with depression and anxiety, they feel the darkness, the misery, the loneliness, the emptiness. And it comes from, it starts with, The eye being bad. The eye being an eye that only sees what's here. What's happening here. Who lets everything that's here consume them. And when it all falls to nothing, here comes the anxiety. Here comes the depression. And Jesus goes on to say in verse 26 in Matthew chapter 6, Look at the birds of the air. For they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. In these, ver- in these few verses between 26 and 30, Jesus is giving us some Solomonic wisdom, proverbial 1 Kings chapter 4, verses 33 and 34 say that Solomon spoke 3,000 proverbs, 1,005 songs. Also, he spoke of trees from the cedar Lebanon, of the cedar tree of Lebanon, even to the hyssop that springs out of the wall. He spoke also of animals, of birds, of creeping things, and of fish. Jesus is doing the same thing. He's, a, he's drawing wisdom from what we observe around us, just like Solomon did here, according to 1 Kings chapter 4. Much of his wisdom came from just his observations of his world. And Jesus is saying, look at this thing that you see every single day. You see these birds fluttering about. They don't sow. They don't reap. They don't drive plows. They don't have storehouses. But yet, your, your Heavenly Father feeds them. You see that? He says, your Heavenly Father feeds even them. It's not saying that the Heavenly Father is the Heavenly Father of these birds. He's saying that your Father is taking time to feed these birds because He cares about them. You know, I feed my children. My children also have a hamster that I see to it that that hamster is being taken care of. Not because I really care that much about the hamster, but I believe it's in, where is that? I'm trying to remember what book of the Bible it's in. Maybe it's, maybe it's a psalm or a proverb or something like that. But it says that the mercy of, of, you know, the no, it's in Deuteronomy. It's part of the law. A man who would follow after righteousness is merciful to his animals. Not because the animal really has any enduring eternal value, but mercy does. Mercy does. And God is a God of mercy who is merciful even to birds. And yet he makes the point of saying, your father feeds them. You're not just some bird. You're not just some stranger to God. You are his child. And he says right after this, are you, are you not of more value than they? If the Lord is going to feed these birds that really don't matter in the grand scheme of things. They kind of do. I mean, don't take that too far. But you're this child. And God makes a point to observe the needs of birds. And yet we have the audacity to think that God is not taking the time to observe my needs and fulfill them. Being a child... Verse 27, which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Clothing. You care about what you look like? Isn't God the grand dresser? Look at the fields in the spring. How beautiful they are with the the wildflowers and other sorts of things out there beautifying the land. That's one thing me and Kristen 
okay, you may not, you may be used to the landscape here, but coming from the flatlands of Illinois, the landscape out here is gorgeous. We love it. It's just beautiful. And God made that landscape. And yet we're worried that God's not going to take care of our earthly needs to give us what we need. Now if God, verse 30, so clothes the grass of the field, which today is, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will He not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Now take that as a little bit of encouragement, okay? He's saying, he's, this is, see the mercy and the, the gentleness mixing with the, the uh, almost an insult. <laughs> o you of little faith. He's saying, even O you of little faith, will not your heavenly Father clothe you? He's not saying that because you're of little faith that he's just going to cast you off. He's saying, will not, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? We do not know precisely who this God is that we serve, that we call Father, that we call Master. And we will not know him in his fullness for some time. Our faith will be little in some degree, as long as we're alive, compared to when we see Him. But right here, He's showing us that He is the source of power. Your faith is not the source of God's love. Okay? God is the source of all power, all mercy, all love for you. The fact that you don't believe it all the time doesn't change the fact that He loves you. Doesn't change the fact that He's a merciful God, full of compassion, who is still your Father, who will take care of you. My kids do not always like me, or Kristen. They probably like Kristen more than they like me. (laughs) But does that mean that I stop serving them, and loving them, and taking care of them? Well, Jayla, you yelled at me today, so... You're just going to go a week with no food. (laughs) Not even I will do that. Now God will punish. He will correct us when we are wrong. It doesn't always feel good. The correction of the Lord is often very painful. But it is not to the end that we go without. Exactly what He knows that we need as our Father. He is not abusive but he is disciplinarian. But I don't want to go too, down, too far down that line. I'll get off track. Oh, you of little faith. Now, just this one verse can strengthen our faith. When he's calling us, oh, you of little faith, and saying, will not the Father still give you everything that you need? This verse, this, this rebuke to us is faith building because it, it reminds us, put the glory where the glory belongs. Because God is the one who's going to be taking care of you. Therefore, verse 31, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? Oh, woe is me. Where is all of this going to come from? I lost my job. I did this. I did that. Verse 32, he tells you, these are all the things that the Gentiles seek. And we were just looking at that in Philippians. The, The way of the world is to do that. To take care of your own things. What else do they have? What other hope do they have? Of course, they're the only ones who can take care of these problems. There's no God to them. There's no Heavenly Father to them. Why are we living like them? Living, going out our days, living as though He's not there taking care of things. Seeing life as though it's just something that we have to conquer. Something that we have to manage and take care of. First and foremost. That God blesses those who blesses themselves. That is heresy. That brings the glory down. Gentiles seek after these things. Do not live like an enemy of God, thinking that it's all up to you. God's not going to do anything if you don't do anything. That does not keep us from our responsibilities. Do not take, get me wrong. But Jesus is not care, does not, in this passage, care about your responsibilities to yourself. Your first and utmost responsibility is to God. 
to have faith in him. That is your first and utmost responsibility. When you see a problem in life, it's not about you and your responsibility. It's about first and foremost, God, the comforter in our miseries, the one who has all of his life in his hand, all of it's played out. He knows what's going on. He's going to manage this. He's going to make sure everything turns out the way he wants it to turn out and it will be good for his will, for his glory, for his children. That is always going to be true. We cannot live like the Gentiles, those who do not believe in God, those who do not claim God. And just thinking, I just got to wrap all this up for myself. But what's the alternative? Verse 33, but seek first. Don't be like the Gentiles who don't seek God, who live like there is no God. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. He's making a covenant with you right now in this passage. He's making a covenant. That's what this language really is. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. If you want to live like a Gentile, spin and toil, live like you have to take care of everything, then you will receive exactly what you're going after. You will be left to take care of everything. That doesn't mean that God will completely abandon you, but for the sake of you learning to look to Him, sometimes He's going to let you suffer misery so that you can see Him, so that you will return back to Him, so that you will look to God again. But in the meantime, if you think that all of life is up to you, to make what it needs to be. Perhaps for a time, God will leave you to it. You know, just like, you know, I've, I've talked to parents, seen parents who their kids are just completely independent. You know what? I want this. I want that. I'm going to, I'm going to have it. You can't control me, mom and dad. Okay, child. If you want to live as though you're not under the care and the protection of your parents, fine. Go on. Give me the keys to the car because it's not your car. I bought that for you. Don't eat out of the fridge. We bought that. We bought that food. You know, go get an apartment. Go get a job. See what it's like to be truly independent. Don't ask me for anything if you want to be truly independent. If you want to be independent, have all the perks of independence, then you need to have the responsibilities of independence. Some parents can go a little bit too far with that. But there is some wisdom there. If you want to be independent from God, sometimes He's going to let you see exactly what it's like to be independent from God. You're going to have to toil and spend every single waking moment worrying about what's going to happen tomorrow because you don't know know how to fix all these problems. And then everything's going to fall apart. Because you're trying to be independent. You're trying to take care of everything yourself without looking to God. And he says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and what all these things will be added unto you. He's freeing you. This is a covenant of freedom. Just like in Deuteronomy 28, we don't have time to read the chapter right now, but in Deuteronomy 28, if you will follow me, I will bless your land. You will be fruitful. You will have everything going your way. Now, that's not true in our day in the sense that we would like it to be true. I'm not up here trying to preach a health, wealth, and happiness sermon here. But I'm trying to tell you what Jesus is telling us. If you put first the kingdom of God, His righteousness, His will, His passions, His pursuits, His priorities, you leave behind all these things that you would rather seek after, Stop seeking your own will and seek His will, His kingdom and His righteousness. God's going to make sure everything in your life is what it needs to be. He's going to take care of your needs for food, for drink, for clothing. He's going to take care of your needs. This is a promise. He's not going to let it go. He's freeing you. When we're stepping out into this, sometimes it feels like a free fall. Because we're not in control anymore of all these things that we want, that we are used to clawing after, controlling. 
And now we're letting it go. We're let, just leaving it to God. Sometimes it feels like a scary free fall. But then when you start seeing God catch you and protect you, then you start really seeing, yo, God is faithful to his promise. I have not lacked. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall be in need of nothing. God is promising us here that if we will devote ourselves to his kingdom, he's going to see to ours. When a manager gives a, a responsibility to an employee, part of that manager's responsibility is to make sure that employee has everything he needs to fulfill the responsibility. Otherwise, he's not managing properly. If he's telling him to do something that he knows he cannot do because of all these things that he cannot take care of himself, that's not good management. But God is saying here, I'm giving you a job. I'm sending you out to fulfill my will, to, to seek my kingdom. It's spread throughout the nations to stand up for justice and righteousness in this world. And if you will do that, don't worry about all the, thi- all the peripheral things. I'll take care of those. I got those. I got them better than you can get them. But if you want to pursue your life, then you will, have no, you will partake in no part of this kingdom glory that I'm sending, trying to send you out to seek. Because you're going to be consumed with just taking care of all the things that I've already promised to take care of for you. You understand that? He's telling us how to live what... In verse, what is it? In verse 25, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? He's telling us how to actually live that way. That life is more than food and clothing. He's giving us the more. Go seek the glory of God's kingdom. Go stand up for righteousness and justice in this world. Be partakers in my divine appointments. I got everything else taken care of for you. I will manage that. If you will go and seek the kingdom, but if you will not go and seek the kingdom, then you will not partake in it and the glories and the joys and the beauty of it because you're going to be so wrapped up in all these things that I've already said I'll take care of for you. You're going to be wasting your life. Wasting it. Because I already said I'd do it. And yet you're doing it. You're wasting yourselves. Because you won't have faith. You won't trust my covenant. You won't believe that I'm actually faithful to what I say I will do. So you'll waste your life. Because you're living like a Gentile who lives like there is no God. There is no kingdom to pursue. There is no rules of righteousness and justice and peace. Just do what you want. Fulfill yourself. Be happy and die. And when, and when we struggle with anxiety over our life, I want to call it, this is me too. I struggle with this too. I'm not just preaching at you, I'm also with you in this. Those of us who struggle with this worry and anxiety, we must repent. We must deliberately confess our sin to God and repent. We can't just, oh, that was a great sermon, I'll try to do better, and go home and go carry about. We need to deliberately confess our sin of anxiety to God. And repent and seek Him to restore to us what has been lost because of our waste. And just seeking our own life. Seeking things that He already promised He'd provide. And remember... That he's freeing us, not just so that we can do what we want. He's freeing us to go and do his will. This promise is here because he's commissioning us. He's saying, go. Life is more than food and raiment. Go. I will take care of food and raiment. You go and live the life that I have for you. Don't live the life that you want for yourself. That looks like a Gentile's life getting all the nice things and supporting yourselves. Don't live your whole life just trying to support yourself and your future. I got all of that. You go do my bidding. 
So if you're going to seek God to help you with your hopelessness, at the same, in the same package deal, you must readily admit and receive the responsibility to go and do his kingdom work. Because that's what it's for. He's saying, I'll take care of all these things as you are doing my kingdom work. That's what his provision is for, to fuel you to go and do what he has called you to do. This is not just God saying, I'm just, I'm just going to make you wealthy and happy and make sure that you are satisfied in your life. Just have faith that I'll take care of all of that. That's not the sermon Jesus is preaching here. He's saying, I will take care of everything, all of these peripheral issues, as you are going and doing my will. So if you want God to take care of all these peripheral issues, go and do his will. That's the sermon Jesus is teaching here. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. All, that, all these needs will be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for today, this day, is its own trouble. And today, you need to concern yourself with, am I living like the Gentile, whose God is his belly, who stands in opposition to God, who is the enemy of God? Am I living like that kind of a person? You know, just like back a few sermons ago, don't pray with vain repetitions like the heathen do. They pray like they have to wake up God in order to, for him to listen. False view of God. Just the same way in this, don't live like the Gentile who lives... Like God isn't there to take care of them. Like he has no hand in their lives. He's just up there to cast out punishment whenever people displease him. No. Serve the God of the Bible. He will take care of you. Trust him. He is able. He knows you by name. He knows every single last penny that you owe, that you need to take care of things. Seek Him. He's got the peripheral issues. Don't make those the big issues. Seek His kingdom. That's the big issue. Lord, help us to have faith. Help us to cast aside, cast to the side, these things that are generally right in front of us. Lord, I pray that these peripheral issues will be cast into the peripheral. Not that we forget about them totally, but that they are not the thing that we are seeking after. Help us to follow you as you want us to follow you. In Jesus' name.